to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Cam Bennett is a Manitoba staple in the film and television production community. As the current program manager for Cinematoba, Cam was previously executive producer for MTS-TV's Stories from Home, and his work has been broadcast on APTN, CBC, CTV, Global, Discovery, The Life Network, History, and The Sci-Fi Network. Cinematoba is a new storytelling initiative brought to you by the National Screen Institute and the Winnipeg Foundation, and we could not be happier to have Cam on board. I sat down with Cam Bennett, Program Manager of Cinematoba, to talk about his four decades of experience in film and TV production, the current landscape of media and content producing, and what we hope to bring to life through the new initiative known as Cinematoba. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined via Zoom by a very special guest. We have Cam Bennett. He's the program manager of Cinematoba. He's a writer, director, and basically the godfather of film in Manitoba is what I've heard today. Cam, welcome to the show. Uh, I can't live up to that billing, but thank you. Thank you for having me, uh, Nolan. So, yeah. Well, it's good to talk to you in this official capacity. We met maybe a couple weeks ago when you were brought on to Cinematoba as the program manager, an incredible get for the program. Uh, I don't think our listeners have heard of Cinematoba yet. I might have mentioned it a little bit here and there, and we will talk about that in, uh, you know, get in depth coming up. But before we get into that, let's just talk about you, your history, uh, where you're coming from, where you're going, all that good stuff. Um, I first met you about 10 years ago uh, in Joe, or I guess it would have been in Ford and uh, Dean's class mm. when you were pitching uh, stories from home back when you were with MTS and talking about that. But maybe even before that, tell me how you got into film production, how you got into, you know, what you do now for a job, writing, directing, all that great stuff. And, and where did it all begin for, for you, Cam? Sure. Um, I, uh, I, I came from the creative communications program uh, at Red River College, and uh, I'm going way back into the uh, time machine here, back to 1980. <laughs> and um, my, my first job at a college was actually at, um, uh, it's CTV Winnipeg now, but back then it was CKYTV, and that's when it was at Polo Park. And uh, my first job in the industry was uh, doing uh, writing and producing, directing commercials. So uh, lots of lots of really bad car commercials in my ancient history, um, and uh, a wonderful place to make a lot of mistakes and, and not get fired. And um, and from there, I uh, kind of ventured out into the industry in various ways. I I wound up working at the. Uh, um, this is probably a throwback thing as well. Video on cable TV back in the day, uh, which was brought by Shaw. And uh, I worked in the promotions department there, but there was a lot of hands-on production stuff. That's where I actually learned how to edit properly and, and uh, white balance the camera and that sort of thing. Because you get to touch the cameras there. Uh, um, and, um, and after that, I went into like a full freelance mode. I, I spent some time at uh, various production companies around town. And uh, it's a long story, but made short, the opportunity started to change. I, I came from that sort of commercial background, but um, in, in a freelance world in, in Winnipeg, uh, it's, it's a fairly competitive market. And um, as if you were trying to be a writer, if you're trying to be a director of commercials or whatever, you weren't always able to pay your bills that way. So you do want to be doing a lot of different things. So what I'm doing research, um, I want to be doing uh, um, uh, commercial, industrial, corporate stuff. 
I did some time at WTN, the Women's Television Network, uh, doing promos there. And the opportunities just started, started to evolve and they became less about um, someone's budget having money to spend on a commercial, on an industrial corporate video. And it began more like uh, broadcast entities uh, looking for people to create content. So I started news magazine format. I worked on the sharing circle and these uh, opportunities. It's like as the time, uh, as the duration of the project increased, the opportunities increased. So as opposed to a 30 second commercial, suddenly working on a five and a half, eight minute news magazine piece. And then that led to a 15 or 22 minute half hour episode. And uh, so actually it was like uh, standalone documentaries and lifestyle television and all kinds of stuff, primarily writing and directing episodes. So, um, and then eventually you mentioned it, uh, MTS came along at a time they just created um, a TV division. And in doing so, they had obligations that the CRTC mandates and they say, well, you know, you're, you're, you're like a cable company, you're, you're a telco and you're distributing uh, channels. So you have to spend money locally. And that meant a local uh, expression entity. And that became Stories From Home. And um, Stories From Home is, uh, I think, fairly unique in, in terms of uh, community or local expression. Um, we didn't have, MTS did not have a physical structure. We didn't have a studio with edit suites or a mobile camera unit where people could come and gain experience in sort of traditional TV positions. We had money to spend. And so we provided opportunity in the form of uh, license fees or grants. And, and, and this was a model that was uh, quickly embraced because what it meant was local filmmakers, experienced or otherwise, had an opportunity to realize their vision with support from that company at the time, MTS. And, and I mean, you know, you talk about a, a $5,000, that's a tremendous amount of money for someone that's never made a film before. It's not as much money for someone that's made a lot of films. So there was a sort of a, a sliding scale like people were trying to figure out how to work within this model. But the bottom line was that people had this opportunity to pitch a project and it was always documentary based or, uh, or lifestyle occasionally, but we never did any scripted drama or anything like that. And um, the ideas that came forward were amazing. You know, there, there was this opportunity for all of these local stories, intensely local stories. And that was kind of our battle cry, intensely local. And the, people came forward with these ideas that, you know, talking about uh, bits of our history, uh, people, places, and things that were, you know, for me, I didn't really consider myself a local history buff, but I learned so much about our city and our province because people kept coming up with these amazing ideas. And so that opportunity for me lasted about 10 or 11 years. And since then, that was 2019, September 2019, I was done at that company. And I've gone out freelancing again. So back to my roots in a way, I'm writing and directing again. So that was probably the longest answer in the history of your podcast, I'm guessing. So, you know, did you it's go to sleep there. at any point in time? It's up there. No, I'm riveted. Um, I'm curious. <laughs> like, So basically, you've done it all, right? I'm curious, even as a kid, were you creative? Did you want to be into film when you were younger? Or what was your plan, uh, you know, from the beginning? Oh, boy. Well, if you if you were to ask uh, my dearly departed father, he, he'd say I didn't have much of a plan. And he might have been onto something. 
Um, but uh, it was that traditional, you should have a trade to fall back on, son. And um, I, uh, I uh, didn't heed those words. I'm kind of useless in the trade uh, realm. Um, I, I grew up in a very small town in rural Manitoba. I was born in a little place called Verdon. And well, I played like, hockey in Verdon. They had the scary, like the kids in Verdon were like, they seemed like they were 18 years old and were 13. I was, I would be terrified of playing in Verdon, but that's an, that's an aside anyways. Go, go ahead. I, I don't remember us being scary, but it was like, I mean, I left a long time ago. I, I left when, when, when my family left, I was 12. Okay. But at the time in this small community, um, you know, you, you were sort of force fed a, a steady diet of organized sports and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, sort of like local cultural things. You, you, you'd learn to square dance. Don't, I am really dating myself here, but, um, uh, amongst all that stuff, I, I found myself, um, really drawn to things like art and writing and, and poetry. And that was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the easiest place to, uh, uh, to live if you were a, like a 10, 11, 12 year old uh, boy in rural Manitoba. But um, I had some amazing teachers along the way. And uh, when our family moved when I was 12, we moved to a new town. And the first thing that happened to me was I, I had uh, an amazing English teacher. And uh, I'm still friends with her today. And her name is uh, Alice McGinnis. And I'm going to name drop Alice right now. And Alice uh, was the first person ever. I think I was 12 or 13 at the time. And she pulled me aside. And she told me that she liked my writing and that I should continue to write. And I thought, well, that is remarkable. Because, um, you know, we, we, we sort of talk about, and I think we all remember those teachers that had an impact on us. But I can tell you that as a 12 or 13 year old, no one had ever pulled me aside and said, uh, you know, that um, formative, supportive type of thing before to something that I thought was just sort of a, a dalliance, like a sort of a, a small thing that I enjoyed uh, independently and, and kind of quietly on my own. And uh, uh, yeah, so that was, gosh, that's 40 some odd years ago. Unreal. And, uh, Alice and I are still friends and every once in a while I'll hear from her on Facebook or whatever. And yeah. So, so anyway, long story short, again, boy, Nolan, you're really good at this. You just get to <laughs> you're you good at talk this. and talk and talk. Um, but yeah. And, uh, and uh, it was a, a tour when I was very young at a local uh, TV station in Brandon called CKX. And next mm-hmm. thing you know, I thought, huh, people make a living doing this. But uh, yeah, I never did pick up that trade that my father suggested. So that, that is kind of an interesting is that, oh, I could, you can make a living as a writer, you know, like not a lot of people realize that that can be a career. I'm curious of how things have changed as a storyteller, you know, 40 years ago when you're telling stories versus now. I mean, the, the tools are different, but I'm imagining the fundamentals of a good story remain. So how, how has your maybe style changed over the last 40 years or what, how have you had to evolve over the last 40 years when it comes to storytelling and when it comes to, you know, creativity as it were? Boy, that's a big one. Um, <clears throat> how much time do we have? <laughs> unlimited. Um, yeah. Unlimited. Um, this is more recent. This isn't, this isn't something that, you know, occurred to me or, or developed over the past 40 years, but like in the past 10, 15 years. And uh, it's almost like the, uh, the tools have been democratized. Mm. Um, the, the, uh, the entry point financially for people to tell uh, stories on film or on or recorded, you know, uh, uh, for TV or, or, you know, 
even you look at the the stuff that happens artistically on on uh, online platforms like YouTube and Vimeo and that sort of thing. These are passion projects that people are doing and they aren't necessarily being paid for. But, uh, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago, if someone suggested that you just go out and buy a camera or buy an edit suite, well, uh, you know. It's thousands of dollars. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like literally, like honest to goodness, like they, you know, like a a camera, a good camera, we're talking about a video camera here, like a a beta cam with a a good lens back in the day were to set you back more than we paid for our house back in the early 90s, right? And so it wasn't, there wasn't that easy access point financially. And I think the other thing that's evolved is that traditional jobs have gone away um, in the sense that uh, in the television industry, where you would normally have a studio crew, there were two or three camera people, there was a floor director, there was uh, an audio person and a switcher and a producer, a technical producer and a director and maybe a right. And you know, this is how the news would happen, the news. And, and so now those traditional jobs have by and large gone away. Um, there are robotic cameras now. You, you hear about local newscasts operating with one or two people in the control room and no one in the studio, not even a floor director, right? The light goes on and the anchor starts talking. So colleges keep churning out these graduates. And I think it's been a very out of necessity and, and, and I think out of passion, people have found a way to keep telling these stories. And so now, and I'm, you know, I'm just gonna pick a figure out of the air, but for $5,000, $10,000, you suddenly have, a camera that is shoots 4k 6k 8k and uh is good enough for netflix to approve it as content worthy uh, on their platform right mm-hmm. so you talk about like a sony fs7 a few years ago and now it's you know the next model after that whatever it is now and uh editing you didn't need this giant room that was climate controlled and had multiple machines you had you have now like this really powerful computer with a piece of software that maybe you don't even own you just rent or you lease and and so it's that price point that entry point for participation i think that's really uh revolutionized what we are able to do as storytellers and i think that's probably been the most remarkable thing that's happened in my time so it's not necessarily that something that impacted me personally so that accessibility, the accessibility is absolutely huge too. I'm curious of your sort of, you know, transitioning from creator to more mentor and, you know, being the guide and being the person who people now come to with questions, whereas before you were probably the guy asking a lot of the questions. So how has that been in, in sort of, in this, this, uh, portion of your career being, being this, uh, you know, all knowing, uh, <laughs> person who has all the answers that anyone could possibly be asking when it comes to film and, and production. Yikes. The, the longer I hang around, the more uh, questions I have. I, mm. uh, I, you know, I'll go back and answer that a different way. I remember everyone that helped me when I started in this industry, I was 21 or 20, 21 years old. And when I started, I remember every single person that helped me understand something. And, um, and I thought, and I, well, you also remember the people that had no time for it, right? And mm-hmm. some people are built that way to, to, to motivate, to embrace, to, to nurture, um, to teach. And, and sometimes you're not. And it's, it's not a personal failing if you're not built that way. But 
it was really important to me. Like I talk about that grade seven English teacher of mine, Alice, that, that, you know, that was a really remarkable thing. So when I entered the industry, I remember everybody that helped me. I thought, okay, well, I, I, I have very fond memories of all those people that took the time. And um, when you're out there scrapping away in the freelance market and you're trying to, um, you know, we had a young family and I was out there not kind of without a net, a social safety net, you know, like there was no pension, there's no paid holidays, there's no weekends off. So when the work came, I did it. And and this is how we kept, uh, you know, our, our lights on, our house afloat. And, um, and you didn't really have, I didn't have time for that sort of mentorship piece. But the MTS job was remarkable in that suddenly the my instincts to take the time to work with young and up and coming filmmakers and to and sometimes you know it's sometimes the the help you give isn't always welcome um so you got to pick your spots mm-hmm. and but the idea that somebody would ask you questions or would take feedback on whatever it was a script a rough cut the idea itself because we used to run programs where we would have pitch competitions, like for example, at the Gimli Film Festival, we would have eight, 10, 12 people come forward with ideas in a formal setting. And there was a small jury and we would select one project out of all these shows being pitched. Well, you had this opportunity instantly to provide feedback. And then you kind of had to justify your choice. Mm-hmm. And, and so like uh, people that weren't successful that day pitching would always come back to us again with that same idea made better or a brand new idea. And it'd be really nice to have that happen because then you got, you sort of went, okay, they were listening and maybe that wasn't their day, but they didn't quit. So what's the, what's the old adage? Don't quit, rest. Mm-hmm. So like we'd have these people come back to us a second time, a third time. And um, because there was always, there was, you know, there was money on the table and there people wanted to make these projects. So there was competition to, to get resources, mm-hmm. but um, it always felt good when somebody would come forward with an open mind and and ask questions, and uh, to hear from people now, just even just being attached to this program, um, people have come forward and I've received messages of support, and people are like, well, it's it's nice that this is happening because I think they realize that uh, that MTS gig was very special. It was special, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So this is a this is sort of an extension of that. Yeah, so this being Cinematoba is the yeah. Winnipeg Foundation and National Screen Institute partnering together to bring five filmmakers $10,000 each to tell their story of generosity. Um, maybe the first question, why did you, or when, you, when this came across your desk and you heard about Cinematoba and the concept, why did you want to get involved? Um, <clears throat> almost word for word what I just said. Like it, uh, it, <sighs> it was so reminiscent of what we were able to do uh, with stories from home. And I love the idea that there aren't any barriers or, or borders. Um, Well, (laughs) there is a border. You need to be a resident of Manitoba. And their stipulation is that you need to be 18 years of age or older, but you can be a person with no experience whatsoever. But if you have a wonderful idea, and you manage to present that idea in such a way that it catches the imagination of, of people making decisions, the juries, then I, I think it's remarkable that someone with little or no TV or film experience could be given the same opportunity, perhaps, 
as someone who has come forward with another great idea, but they've made three films or they've made 10 films or whatever. So again, it was that, that spectrum of people that we uh, dealt with at MTS. On, on one end of that spectrum, uh, people that had zero experience, but they were passionate and a wonderful idea. And on the other end, really accomplished people that perhaps an idea that didn't quite fit uh, a traditional broadcaster or, or didn't fit a theme. In this case, if people come forward with something that is suitable for our theme of generosity, then the, every door is open. And yeah. I, I, love, I love that idea. Very well said. Um, so, I mean, it's built right into the name. We built it in Cinematoba, Manitoba. Um, can you speak a little bit to just what it's like being in the film industry in this province specifically, getting to know all the people, all the people getting to know you, whether that's good or, you know, like your reputation kind of stays with you, right? So what's it been like working in Winnipeg and Manitoba specifically when it comes to this industry? How is it unique to other parts of the world? And, and what do you think makes Manitoba special? Well, you know, these are almost little hives that we have. Like there's a, <clears throat> there's that, that film world and I really don't, you know, I don't dally in the film world. And, uh, um, but in, in kind of the TV uh, world, then there's, there's a camaraderie there as well. And, and I'm not saying the two don't mix and mingle. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I know people that have a foot in both worlds, but um, Manitoba is, I think, as resilient and as remarkable a market as you will find anywhere in North America. Um, the industry has done a remarkable job starting with, you know, the, the previous government and continuing on with the government that we have now, and that is uh, maintaining a, an open relationship about keeping this market healthy. And that comes through tax credits and it comes through outreach and it comes with um, uh, resources. Um, if you look at things like Film Training Manitoba, as, as an example of a way that the industry has responded to a need. Um, people are finding out more and more about uh, the industry and what's possible here in Manitoba. You can make a really good living. Uh, you can uh, work on some wonderful projects. It can be a grind like anything else um, because the, the hours are long and you really have to be passionate about this work. But I, I think that uh, Manitoba as a special place to make projects because there's, there's a couple of things that happen, right? There's the big productions that come here. And thereafter, tax credits and crews and locations, and, and they pick up and go, and that, that's the end of it. But out of that has uh, emerged a really remarkable uh, home built or home baked, baked at home uh, uh, film uh, community, right? Mm-hmm. So the Winnipeg Film Group, Video Pool, um, Winnipeg Aboriginal Film Festival, Gimli Film Festival, um, uh, the courses at Red River College, ACC, even high school courses like Oak Park, they have created these programs where people learn to express themselves visually. And there is a pathway to an industry and potentially a career if you want one. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that, um, I think from a storyteller's perspective, Manitoba is remarkably a uh, rich place to to try to tell your stories. Absolutely, very well said. Um, I'm curious, just your perspective on sort of the modern platforms that there are. You know, there's Instagram, there's YouTube, Vimeo. You mentioned TikTok, all these crazy places. But at the end of the day, it is you're filming things, you're editing things together, and you're put even if it's just a 15 second meme video, like that takes a lot of skill, timing, understanding of storytelling and, you know, drama and this and that. So I'm just curious your perspective on just the modern landscape of film and short film and social media and TV and what that sort of evolved into with all the streaming platforms and just what's your take on 
sort of now in the next five, 10 years, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? And how, how does you think it all shakes down when it comes to creativity through a visual me- visual medium like that? Yikes. That's, <clears throat> well, again, th- th- these are the tools that just didn't exist when, when I was young, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's quite remarkable to think that um, uh, someone with no budget and uh, uh, basically a, a device in their hands mm-hmm. that looks like this can record something within minutes that can find an, a worldwide audience, uh, potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of viewers or views. And, and they do so purely out of passion and they do so out of you know, creativity and they do so because they have a unique story or perspective uh, that they'd like to share. Um, and I, I think that's become critical, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'll be honest. I do not understand how that sort of stuff is monetized. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my connection with social media is, uh, is tenuous at best. So I, I, I can't claim to be well-versed there, but it's remarkable to me that like someone sitting in their basement, again, with this handheld device can, can create something that reaches a worldwide audience that literally in terms of viewers can outstrip um, uh, productions that, that occur in the traditional landscape, the traditional way where like shows are made with a crew and they're edited and there's this process and there's some money exchanging hands and winds up on a, on a broadcast platform and then online. And it still can't touch the number of eyeballs, like you know, like the, that. Literally, it's a, it's a, it's a percentage of the eyeballs that saw that little thing that was made in somebody's basement. So that's remarkable to me. It's, yeah. it's mind blowing. I don't, I can't lie. I don't always see the value of some of these things that you know. Mm-hmm. I have um, my kids are in their early twenties. So every once in a while, somebody will come to me with their phone and they'll look at this video, and I will look at the video, and it's. It's funny, but I'm like, who made that? Why did they make that? Why did they choose to share that? And um, and uh, if for no other reason than just to have a laugh. Now, I I, I guess I should be, uh, like I should confess, if that stuff was around when I was 12 or 15 or 18 years old, oh, I would have been all over it. But right now, I don't. I don't always understand the model. I'm I'm old. Oh man, me too. And I'm 36, so there you go. Well, let's talk a little bit about Cinematoba because uh, I'm very excited about this project. It's been a long time coming. We we started conceptualizing it two years ago, and it's finally public. We can finally share it with people. Cinematoba.org. Uh, yeah, we're we're taking applications right now. We want all levels of film makers or storytellers to come on board. You will get paired with a mentor, no matter what skill level you're at. If you've made a film before, if you haven't, you will have all the tools and the uh, you know know how and the connections to be able to tell your story your way. Uh, but maybe Cam, if someone's listening right now and is like, oh, I'm not too sure about this Cinematoba thing. What 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 would you pitch them to to come on board and and put in an application at Cinematoba.org? Um, I, I, I wouldn't know what would, uh, cause anyone to hesitate. Um, if, you know, obviously the, the critical thing is that the idea you're proposing has to match our mandate and there are our theme. And, and so the theme of generosity, as we discussed this morning on another call, the theme of generosity is a bit vague and it's intentionally so because it doesn't have to adhere to a certain model or certain charitable organization or, or that sort of the things that we might think of when we think of, you know, someone asking for 
assistance by way of direct mail or a phone call when you're trying to have dinner or whatever, perfectly legitimate organizations doing outreach, trying to raise money. So it's not that. It's, it's the idea that generosity can take many forms, can be embodied by people, by places, by companies, by um, those charitable organizations that we, that we mentioned. But it's, it's, as you mentioned so eloquently this morning, it's being charitable with your time, of yourself, not necessarily uh, something, a message that uh, causes you to reach into your pocket and pull out money and share that. Money helps most organizations all the time. Um, but the idea that someone can give of themselves and, um, you know, that, that sort of, you know, uh, that example that we were discussing this morning, maybe someone in your neighborhood is the first person to wake up and go shovel walkways when it snows, or they're always looking out for an elderly neighbor on the block and making sure that, you know, they're well unaccounted for and maybe there's a hot meal that changes hands that sort of thing mm -hmm. so these are sort of ideas that fit into that um documentary realm so because these things are happening it's a it's a pov thing maybe it's something that you've done or your family has done and you want to share that story but uh i think they're really neat ideas that you don't have to be a documentarian to, to participate, you can bring forward an idea to Cinematoba that falls outside of the documentary landscape. It could be um, uh, a, a dramatic piece. It could be something that is scripted. It could be something that is experimental. It, there could be animation involved. There could be sock puppets. I'm not even sure what people are gonna bring forward, but I think as long as the, as long as the ideas are uh, true to the theme, of generosity that were wide open. I think that's the other exciting thing is that if someone comes forward with an idea that, you know, because again, my expertise is kind of truly in the documentary realm, but if somebody comes forward with an idea that is experimental or involves, you know, modern dance or whatever, you know, make something, then we'll find a mentor that finds, that understands that, that realm and, and pair that filmmaker with the appropriate mentor. So it's, uh, I, I, I don't see any barriers for anyone uh, to come forward with an idea that's so crazy because I, I you know, I, I know that we're capped at 100 entries. So I think people should get their entries in as soon as possible. But um, there's no one there telling you, there's no gatekeeper saying we don't do that. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, it has to be in good taste. It obviously has to be, yeah. You know, it has to fit certain mandates that it's got to be broadcast and shared down the road. But yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's very exciting. And National Screen Institute and Joy and her team are just, you know, world caliber, world class. And it's so, so grateful to be partnered with them. Yeah, I'm very excited. What are you most looking forward to uh, from this project and, and just from from what we're expecting to see in the next year and a half, I guess? Yeah, um, I just think the potential, and I, I really like, you know, uh, maybe it's just the, the fact that I I, uh, I grew up in a small town. I hope there are, are uh, proposals that come from all over Manitoba. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's it's sometimes hard to get people uh, in outside of the perimeter, the city of Winnipeg perimeter, to realize that these opportunities exist and to realize that these opportunities exist for them as well mm -hmm. on equal footing. So I hope the ideas come from everywhere. And I hope the proposals are, I hope we're all surprised by the things that are, um, 
that are made possible. And again, like that, I, I mentioned it earlier, I learned so much about local history uh, and provincial history when I was at Stories From Home. I would like for the same thing to happen now. I'd like to learn about someone or something that's happening somewhere in the province that I knew nothing about and that it's exciting to read that proposal. And, and you, because when that happens, when you get that little lightning bolt and you actually read the proposal and you go, I can see this. I can mm -hmm. see this as a film. I can see this as a documentary. I can see this as, you know, um, uh, a creative expression. And I think that's when it gets exciting. So that's so what I'm looking for. All you folks outside the perimeter of Winnipeg, I mean, I'm from Russell, so all the Russell folks listening to this right now, get those applications in. It's at cinematoba.org. All the information you need is there. Um, but if you have any questions, you can also visit at Cinematoba on all social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, or email hello at cinematoba.org as well, if you have any questions at all. Uh, Cam, before we let you go, we do a little segment called Just Because. It's the same seven questions that I ask all my guests just about the causes you care about and the effect that it's had on your life. Thus the name because and effect. Okay. To go through that with us. It is seven questions. We're going to be another hour and a half. You don't, you don't have that kind of time. So yeah, this might be the portion that gets edited. Yeah. Let's try the lightning round. The lightning. Uh, all right. Well, question one, what is the very first cause you even remember caring about? Oh boy. Um, when I was a, 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 a a child, uh, my my mom would take me to church, and mm -hmm. uh, and so what I what I remember then was uh, there would be occasionally uh, things that were happening at the church that my mom would get uh, really passionate, and excited about, and suddenly there'd be um, I would see my mom uh, do baking or making a meal or walking something across the street, or she'd ask me to take someone uh, something to someone across the street, mm -hmm. and um, I, I I really connected with that idea of uh, being a local need and being. Uh, without ceremony, without any sort of uh, grand gestures, this these little things that would happen, like meal trains for someone who was sick or for someone who had lost uh, someone, mm -hmm. and uh, and just that idea that that charity stuff, um, you know, I I'm not comfortable with that charity begins at home thing, but if you look at home as where you live, mm -hmm. uh, then that's critically important. And I, it was it was actually things that I would see my mom do for uh, for people that she knew in our town. So. Yeah. Beautiful. Love it. Uh, question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, you could just sort of snap your fingers and something would happen. What's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Ooh, <clears throat> well, I don't know that I have a single current cause, but I'll, I'll tell you about a conversation that my wife and I have all the time. And that is, uh, if we ever won great big money with a lottery, that we always talked about the things that we would do. And, um, and, uh, uh, clean water in rural and remote communities in Canada uh, should be a natural, should be a given. And so um, uh, it's something that we take for granted here in the city. And it's not something that uh, a lot of communities outside, well outside the city, uh, always enjoy under working, living under boil water advisories and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So if, I, if, if logistics and finances and everything else were a non-issue, I'd wave a magic wand, and I wish that were so, and I would have clean drinking water for every community in Canada. That Beautiful be answer. The ideal. Yeah, well said, sir. Uh, question three, this kind of, I mean, you're already talking about how nobody really understands that there are Canadians that don't have clean water to drink, but what is the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about, about the causes that you care about? Mm. 
Well, I'm not sure. I think sometimes it's a political hot potato. Um, and, you know, you can't, governments come and governments go. Um, but a, a, a problem like the lack of clean drinking water in, in uh, many of our communities, First Nations communities, is inexcusable. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I guess what I uh, get frustrated with is uh, that, that it's not a priority now and wasn't a priority 20, 40 years ago. Um, I, I, wish that, I wish that governments could get out of their own way sometimes mm. and remove that partisan piece to just work together provincially, federally, across the aisle to make good things happen for people that need it most. So well said. Yeah, could not agree more. Very well said. Uh, question four, what's a recent victory, either personally or professionally, that you can share with us today? Recent victory. Oh gosh. That's one of your dubs. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, well, you know, it's been a challenging couple of years for everyone under the uh, pandemic uh, restrictions and under kind of the, the quote unquote, the new normal. Um, I, this is going to sound kind of lame, Nolan. I don't know. Uh, I was uh, very often unable to uh, work at home uh, because I just, I couldn't concentrate. Like it would, this, this is, this sounds so sad, but I mean, like I, you know, that idea that I'm easily distracted you know, a chore. Oh, there's laundry to do. I should do those dishes. Oh, I should go for a walk. Oh, the, you know, the cat needs a pad. And I, I wasn't able to work. And I would actually, I rented an office there for a year or so just to get out of my home, even though it was empty, like, you know, like, and I, I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't really uh, uh, work successfully in this environment. And, and for whatever reason, uh, I, uh, over the past year or so, I have become more disciplined about my work. And th this is a huge thing because I'm mid fifties and I'm a procrastinator. Mm -hmm. So the idea that I have somehow managed to uh, uh, achieve that discipline to come up first thing in the morning, make a pot of coffee and sit down and start working first before everything else. Like, so I, I'm, up, I'm up early. So if I'm up and I, I, I have the whole house to myself, I put on a pot of coffee and I work for a couple hours and I get some stuff done, and then I feel way better about the rest of my day because it's not hanging over my head. So that that seems like a lame uh, W. No, not that's, at that's all. my W. That's my W. That's a good one. Any any specific tips for fellow procrastinators out there? <clears throat> oh, I you know I don't think that's fair because it <laughs> would be like. It would be if, if, if I was a smoker and then I quit smoking and then I started telling people why they should quit smoking. I can't be that judgy. If you're a procrastinator, I feel your pain. I feel your burden. And, uh, and uh, we do it to ourselves. And I'm not sure why we do it. But I, I hope uh, we all reach the same place where we're able to do our stuff when we need to do it. How's that? That's good answer. A no, that's a good one too. And that's the thing. Like you can tell what's the, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. No, no amount of advice is going to help me or any other procrastinator, right? It has to be a, from within. So I yeah, you got to get there. You got to get there on your own. I think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, question five, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Oh, well, I have one that's completely inappropriate, so I won't share that here. But uh, but the oh. appropriate. Oh yeah, I know, I know. But maybe after after we stop recording, I'll ask you. Sure, maybe I'll phone you later and I'll just tell you. Um, I, I would say the best, and this again, it sounds uh, so lame. Don't sweat the small stuff. Um, uh, everything that we worry about, ninety five percent of it isn't going to happen. 
And yet the stories we tell ourselves is that, you know, like, again, I think this goes along with procrastination, but if you have this, um, this degree of cynicism or pessimism about you, and I have it, then it's like that thing where you can't get on top because it's like, oh, you know what? If I do this, then something bad's going to happen. If I don't do that, something worse is going to happen. And you're immobilized by analyzed or what is it? You're uh, 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 I know what you're, paralysis, yeah. paralysis, paralysis by, by analysis. analysis. Yes. There we go. Thank you. Um, and and so uh, I think that's one of the big ones. Is that uh, um, yeah, I've forgotten the question. But anyway, whatever I just said. Advice, cool. Yeah, advice-wise, it's just kind of like, just do it. You know, Nike, just do it. You don't have to stop and think about it and worry, is this going to go well or is this not? It's just, if you start doing something, things are going to come up, problems are going to arise, but you can you can pivot as necessary, sort of. Yeah, yeah. And I am and I mean, I think it's the, it's the thing that, again, it's those stories that we tell ourselves that get us into trouble, right? Oh, you're worried about all these things happening. And by and large, they never do, so... <laughs> So question six, if you could take yourself back to Verdon, Manitoba and your 10-year-old self and you could give yourself some advice, what would you go back and tell 10-year-old Cam? Oh, boy. Um, <clears throat> 10-year-old Cam. 10-year-old Cam wouldn't have listened. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's it is just listen to your elders, you know, or... <laughs> <laughs> well, um I keep, this is something I'm repeating and it's my, my lovely wife, Anne, got me thinking about this. And, and I think it was from a book that she had read and the phrase was the stories we tell ourselves. So just that idea that if um, you can, you can, you can damage yourself any number of ways by believing the wrong things or believing things that aren't true. And so I, I guess, you know, like, everybody would like to think that if they go back in time and talk to the younger self, that the first thing they do is they, they start betting on sporting events because they'd be wealthy. Right. Mm -hmm. I know who wins this super bowl. Back to the future style. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the idea that you can actually go back and guide yourself. And, and I think if without, without interfering, what's going to happen next, right. and that would be turn off all those other voices because sometimes the voice inside you is yours and that's the accurate one and that's the one that has your best interest in heart at heart and uh and don't get distracted or dissuaded by other voices so beautifully uh, said you're a poet sir i love it i don't know thank you very much for your time right now thanks for coming wait, on wait, board a minute. With wait a minute hold on nolan i think that was question six i know I, I i usually like to say thank you first because question seven is the hardest one so i you usually say I, thank you you thought i wasn't paying attention but I'm no. you're a details guy you're you're in it question seven is the hardest one um and i yeah it's a hard one to answer for me that's why i think it's the hardest but maybe for you it'll be easy but question seven is what do you want to be remembered for Oh, yeah, you're right. That's a killer. Uh, well, okay. <clears throat> Thank you uh, for, for giving me this opportunity. It's, it's rare when uh, we get to talk uh, honestly and sort of in unfettered fashion. Mm -hmm. You're going to want to edit this down. I'm looking at the time, we're like 45 minutes in. Now. This is great. Uh, it's been wonderful. Great. Um, uh, without getting all mopey and weepy, I, I guess that I don't, I don't know that anything that 
I've done professionally is going to stand any test of time. But I would like to think that the friends I've made, that uh, my family, that I, my lovely children and my wife, um, I would like to think that people would speak well of me after I'm gone. And so if that's um, because of some interaction that we've had personally, or that someone thought I wasn't um, uh, full of crap when I spoke to them professionally, trying to help them with a project, or that I wasn't too hard on them when I gave them some tough love with some bad notes or some notes that weren't welcome on a rough cut or whatever. I, I'd like to think that ultimately they see value in some of the things that, uh, some of that interaction that we had. And, um, and that's it. Cause I don't think we can fool ourselves into thinking that anything we've built or anything that, you know, like, you know, I, uh, this is TV and film. We're telling stories and that's critically important to our well-being and our, and our mental health. But, you know, I've said this to countless young people in my industry, and that is we aren't saving lives in this industry. We are not delivering babies. We are not creating uh, um, antidotes for, for illnesses or, 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 or cures. Um, but what we do is important in our own way. But don't, don't get a head full of you know, um, arrogance about what we do. We're, we're, we're not changing lives. Yeah. So, I mean, what's that old adage? Um, people don't remember what you did. It's they remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. kind of what you're talking about there. And I mean, so far we've, we've only known each other for a short time, but you, you're uh, you're a delight to have on the team. I'm very excited for the future of Cinematoba. I know we got that question this morning of like, is this going to be an annual thing? So, I mean, if we, when we knock it out of the park this year, uh, let's hope to make this a, a Winnipeg and a Manitoba staple. Yeah. Well, you know, again, this is a remarkable vision. I, the um, Winnipeg Foundation and National Screen Institute, like, almost unlikely partners in a way because I didn't see this coming. Mm. But when I heard about the program, it was a, it was very exciting because it's like, well, wait a minute, this is the kind of thing that could have legs that, um, you know, if it was the same theme every year or a different theme every year, but, but connected with both organizations in a meaningful way, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm very, very, very appreciative that I was asked to, uh, to come along for the ride. So well, as soon, yeah, as soon as I heard your name, I was like, yes, woo. Now we got, now we got some, now we got some moxie behind the team. So very excited. Cinematoba.org for everyone listening, go and apply. We're going to be, you know, keeping up with all of the projects throughout the year. We're going to be having a grand showcase in September, 2023. So there's a lot to come yet. Cinematoba.org. Cam Bennett is the program manager for Cinematoba and writer, director extraordinaire. Uh, Thank you so much for being involved. Thanks for being on the podcast today. And I guess let's get to work. You bet. Thanks, Nolan. Take care. Thank you again, Cam, for the conversation. Uh, Yeah, I've only recently got to know Cam and I could not be happier and more excited to have him on board for Cinematoba. I think he brings a legitimacy to this thing that we were really looking for. And uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, Applications are open right now. Like we mentioned, only the first uh, 100 applications are going to be considered. So, you know, if you'd like 10,000 bucks to work on a short film about generosity in Manitoba, you might want to get that application going. Again, it's cinematoba.org, not .ca, cinematoba.org for all additional information. It's got a frequently asked questions uh, portion on the website there. So yeah, hop on to cinematoba.org for more info. The music on our show, Because and Effect, was produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music by searching Trenton Burton on Spotify. And if you have yet to subscribe to this podcast, please do so on whatever app you happen to be listening to. If you're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play... I don't know. There's probably a thousand different 
podcast apps that I, that I haven't uh, named, but please subscribe. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, if you follow the podcast and subscribe, you will get notified every time we drop a new episode and it really helps us out. And uh, I want to grow this thing and keep doing it for as long as I can. So the more subscribers we have, the better it looks. And uh, yeah, thank you for subscribing. Because in Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. To learn more about TWF, visit at WPGFDN on all social media accounts. And you can visit WPGF. You can visit WPGFDN.org for more information as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for Because in Effect. Thank you so much for listening this week. We will see you next time. And remember, filmmaking is a chance to live many lifetimes. Bye-bye.